strange thing about being shot is that it doesn't hurt. Not at first. In those first few moments, you feel the tug of the bullet pulling backwards, this sudden pressure that feels unbearable and numb at the same time. You feel the pain a few seconds later. It comes in a wave rushing into the wound. Then you can barely feel anything else. It's not something I'd recommend. My knees buckle, and I slam down onto them with such force that for a moment, my whole body shakes. Then I tumble forward, my hands shooting out. I manage to catch myself half a second before I slam face first onto the concrete floor. The pain shoots up my gut again. Fuck. I think I'm gonna die. It doesn't matter that I've been shot twice before. There's a mixture of panic and shock threatening to tear me apart. The room's a bit of a blur until I hear the click of shoes walking across the floor. Looking up, I, I, I can see my, my, I can see them getting closer. The guns casually pointed down until we're only a few feet apart. Then it rises and the whole world disappears. Is this how I'm going to die? In some fucking warehouse by the river? The other times I was shot, I was so focused on moving that I didn't think about dying. Now that I'm looking down the business end of a 9mm, my hands are shaking so badly I can barely hold myself up. Part of me wants to keep acting tough, but I'm on the verge of tears, I swear to God. This isn't where I want to die. And in that moment, in that horrifying realization that I'm about to be murdered and there's not a fucking thing I can do about it, I think back to the last week and the circumstances that led me here. Why the fuck did I take this case? So tiny to fit all of this life Today is for my brothers at the old bookshop We talk about the trade and then we drink up Back to the office, losing my high Feels like a
A week ago, I was sitting in the passenger seat of my 2013 Ford Focus. It's not a car I'm particularly proud of. It's boring as hell, actually, but it's cheap and it's reliable. My previous car was a Volkswagen, and the first time I got shot was because the engine wouldn't turn over. So the Focus works for whatever that's worth, and more importantly, it blends in. Unlike something like a Crown Vic, people don't see your headlights and assume you're a cop. And in my line of work, discretion is everything. I'm an independent investigator. And before we go any further, don't call me a private detective. Not only is it cheesy as hell, it makes me sound like I'm some bum who couldn't hack it as a cop. I mean, I was a cop, but that's not the fucking point. I don't solve murders. I'm not Sherlock Holmes. Not only are those kind of jobs dangerous, they also don't pay the bills. If someone you know has been killed, you should call 911. Also, find yourself a good lawyer, because if you're in a situation where you want to hire a private eye to solve your case, that likely means you're a suspect. As for me, most of my work involves unhappy marriages and corporate espionage. There's no shortage of cheating spouses in the world, though just as often my clients are simply jealous and suffer from overactive imaginations. The corporate stuff pays better, of course, but it's not as dependable. People don't embezzle often enough to keep my lights on. Shit, did I remember to pay my electric bill? Anyway, the best-paying clients are the ones who've got a secret that they don't want leaking out. Maybe it's an employee's bad behavior, but more often than not, someone's trying to steal intellectual property. It's not exactly the thrilling shit you were expecting, right? Well, don't worry. Over the last week, I was too stupid to stick to the boring stuff, so we'll be getting to that in just a minute. What I'm trying to tell you is that an investigator could do worse than having a string of business clients who are fighting over licensing patents and non-compete clauses. My other client is one that'll probably surprise you. The police. Yeah, they don't like talking about it. But sometimes cops will turn to guys like me, especially if they don't have a CI in the right place. For those of you who aren't up on the lingo, CIs are confidential informants. I've been one several times. I can talk to people who'd never give the 5-0 the time of day. Still, despite the countless detective dramas you've seen on TV, don't let yourself be fooled. This is not a particularly interesting job. I spend a lot of time in motel parking lots with a telephoto lens. It's not exactly something I'd take to my kid's career day. Not that I have a kid. So, getting back to last week, I was sitting in my car. As per usual, I sat on the passenger side. It's less conspicuous that way. If I'm in the driver's seat, I'm some creep that's been parked outside all afternoon. In the passenger seat, I'm just a guy waiting for his friend. I was tailing a woman named Deborah. <sighs> what an awful name that is, Deborah. Anyway, Deborah, she'd gone inside a nearby bar. I was waiting for her to come back out again. I had a feeling this was going to be the night that I finally caught her red-handed. A few days before, I'd broken into her apartment. I had to be careful, because this was a business client. If Deborah knew that someone broke into her house, well, that could cause problems. I had to get in and out without leaving a trace. You see, sometimes my methods aren't exactly legal. Now, don't be so judgmental. I, I hear what you're saying. It's wrong to break the law. This woman, doesn't she have rights? Well, sure she does. As a cop, I wouldn't do any of this unless I had a warrant first. 
See, that's one of the perks of being in business for yourself. As long as the client gets what they're looking for, no one's really that interested in asking how I got it. I've got to be careful, of course. I am breaking the law. But because I used to be a cop, I know a lot of ways to get around the usual shit that gets people caught. Take burglar alarms, for example. Most people wire up their doors, maybe a window or two, but not all of their windows, especially not the ones on the side of the house. <laughs> that was Deborah's mistake. I have a gray jumpsuit that's not very flattering, but I look like a handyman when I'm wearing it. If I need to break into a house, I rent a white panel van and show up wearing this and a belt full of tools. No one blinks an eye when they see me inspecting the house. They simply assume I work for the gas company or something and go on with their day. With Deborah, all I needed to get inside was a screwdriver and a spring-loaded knife. Once I popped the window latch, I was able to pull myself up and inside. It took some doing, I admit. Partially because I'm not as young as I used to be, but also because I'm not in particularly good shape. I could lose about 15, 20 pounds. Clients don't care, of course. There's too many TV detectives who are fat slobs wearing oversized trench coats. But I'm trying not to become a fucking stereotype. As I crawled in Deborah's window, I made a promise to myself to get back to the gym. As soon as I was inside, I went straight for the computer. Now once upon a time, finding sensitive information was hard work. You had to look through files, cabinets, even old shoeboxes. Some people even bought safes for their office. Now, of course, everyone just stores it on their computer, and a lot of people, like Deborah, don't even bother to password protect their home computer. They live alone. They figure, what's the point? It's a dumb mistake. Within minutes, I'd installed a program that would allow me to see everything she did over the next few days. I also gave myself access to her calendar and downloaded her email contacts onto my phone. From then on, I could snoop on her from the privacy of my office. That's how I'd learned about her secret meeting. As an investigator, you learn certain things about people. Like, everybody has secrets, and I do mean everybody. I've never met a person without something to hide, and more often than not, my job is to uncover the one thing they most want to keep under wraps. Now, as a general rule, people suck at hiding things either because they're careless like Deb was, or because they overcompensate and are tireless in their effort to distance themselves. Are you embezzling money or going to drug-fueled parties? Usually not. A lot of times it's violent pornography or an addiction to $5 scratch-offs. But mix in anything like that with some old-time religion, and you've got the perfect recipe for self-loathing. Turning back to Deborah, honestly, she was almost too easy. Not so easy that I wouldn't cash the checks, mind you, but I didn't feel great about it. As soon as she set up a meeting with her business partners, all I needed to do was stake out their meeting place. If I could get some pictures of the exchange to go along with the bank statements I'd pulled, her company would have more than enough evidence to prosecute. Really, the bank statements were probably enough. I also had half a dozen incriminating emails, but clients like pictures. Pictures are sexy. A grainy shot through a long lens feels like the kind of thing you go to an independent investigator for, so having those usually makes the client feel like they got their money's worth. And a happy customer is potentially a repeat customer. If you can, it's best to over-deliver. That's what brought me out that night, 
sitting in the passenger seat of my mediocre car. I listened to NPR while I waited. Sometimes I'll turn on an oldie station, the audio equivalent of comfort food, but they play the Eagles too much. Seriously, I'd rather listen to soft-spoken interviews about the mating habits of a monarch butterfly than hear lying eyes for the millionth goddamn time. And truthfully, I do feel like I'm becoming a bit more well-rounded. For example, did you know that monarch butterflies are losing population because people don't plant milkweed anymore? After hearing that, I put a window planter outside my office window. I tried planting milkweed, but it, it didn't take. I've never been much of a gardener. The monarchs are going to have to get their help from somebody else. Back to the stakeout, I did my best to keep a close eye on the door. The moment Deborah walked outside, I was going to have to move. For the time being, however, it remained stubbornly closed, so I decided to turn on my phone and answer a couple of emails. One of the messages there was promising. There was a man named Abner who wanted to hire me. It seemed that someone was trying to blackmail him with a series of threatening pictures. In my first reply, I asked what the pictures were of. Abner responded, but he refused to tell me. That probably means they're sex pictures. But it's smart that he won't put the answer in writing. He could trust me, but he doesn't know me well enough to know that yet. Until we meet face to face, until money changes hands, he shouldn't reveal anything more than he has to. Most of my clients are dumber than Abner. I was in the middle of typing my reply when a flit of movement caught my eye. Looking up, I saw Deborah stepping out onto the sidewalk. She paused to reach into her pocket and pull out a cigarette. As she leaned in towards her lighter, I prepared to climb out of the car. My camera felt good in my hands, a natural extension of my arm. In the old days, surveillance was a real pain in the ass. Depending on the situation, you sometimes needed three or four lenses for a clunky DSLR. During my early days as a cop, I did my fair share of stakeouts, and back then we were still using film. The pictures looked like shit, and juries would complain about the lack of detail. Well, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I'm not Annie Leibowitz, and drug deals rarely occur in good lighting. They pick back alleys for a reason, you know. These days, mirrorless cameras are smaller, faster. I can use one long lens and trust that the low light performance will be good enough for me to fix it in the light room later. Deborah turned to start walking, and I climbed onto my feet. As I trailed behind her, I was sure to keep my distance. Deborah stopped and glanced over her shoulder. I managed to slip into a recessed doorway in the nick of time. I spent the next minute hugging the wall. When you're trying to shadow someone, the worst thing you can do is give them a chance to get a good look at you. Seriously. Even if they realize you're tailing them and scuttle the meeting, you can still pick them up later as long as they don't know what you look like. However, once they recognize you, you're well and truly fucked. Once I count to a hundred in my head, I stepped back out onto the sidewalk. Deborah's twenty feet further away than she was before, but she didn't see me. It was almost too easy. I followed Deborah for several blocks and managed to get halfway decent pictures of her meeting with her business partners. I showed those to her boss. He looked at the image disapprovingly and shook his head. Then he cut me a check. Poor Deborah never even saw it coming. She worked for a small banking firm, and it hadn't taken them long to suspect her of skimming funds. When they first called me, I suspected it was drugs or gambling. In my experience, those are the most common reasons that people steal from work. However, it turns out that Deborah was more ambitious than I'd given her credit for. 
She was funneling money into a condo development in Ohio City. <laughs> How things change. It wasn't that long ago that this was considered a bad part of town. Back then, you couldn't pay people to move here. Now there's yuppie housing on every other corner. Some people call it progress. Others call it gentrification. To Deborah, it was opportunity. However, when she couldn't bankroll the payments herself, she decided to borrow money from an account at the bank, which no one ever seemed to touch. She had no way of knowing it was an FBI slush fund, one used to set up stings on organized crime. Oftentimes, experienced crime syndicates check on a new partner's bank account, making sure the money is really there. It's a good way to avoid getting scammed by rivals or busted by the local 5-0. When Deborah touched the funds, alarms went off at the local FBI field office. Within a couple of hours, her bosses were cooperating with the Bureau, trying to figure exactly who it was that was moving their money into an offshore account. Tough luck, Deb. But then what the fuck did she think she was doing? Skimming money from a bank? If there's anyone who's going to notice. You know what I mean? They arrested her the same day, right in the middle of the office. They didn't even let her finish her lunch. The local news put some of the pictures online. Poor Deb being let outside in handcuffs, her head turned down. I can imagine the conversations from her co-workers. It's usually all the same. Oh, so-and-so was always so nice. She was so quiet. Those poor gullible rubes. Listen, I don't care how much you like Ron in the next office. He's hiding something. So when he gets fired for downloading Tentacle Hente at work, try not to be caught off guard, okay? Everybody's got secrets. Everybody. Once you understand that, it's easier to understand the people around you. Now, speaking of secrets, my next stop that day was the Synthetic Corporation. Abner and I exchanged another round of emails, and he invited me to meet him at his office, the Synthetic Corporation's headquarters. I'm sure you've heard their name before, but unless you're a regular subscriber to Wired or Ars Technica, you're probably not aware of their corporate culture. Well, the Synthetic Corporation is notoriously secretive, and with good reason. For the last decade, they've been on the cutting edge of some of the most promising technological innovations in the Western world. Getting access to their inner sanctum, that was kind of a big deal. Cleveland has a few Fortune 500 companies, but not so many that it isn't desperate to add another. The Synthetic Corporation is on the verge of going public, and everyone expects it to be valued at several billion dollars. Such rapid growth has earned nothing but positive press and adoration from the local powers that be, but among certain quarters, the company's rising fortune have been viewed with narrow-eyed suspicion. People around town have taken to calling it Syncorp for short, if that's any indication about how locals feel about the new behemoth in their midst. Now, Abner was going to get me inside. If I hadn't intended to take his case, I'd still take the meeting just to get a good look around. And, for the record, there are plenty of jobs that I turn down. I don't look into murders and missing persons, and while I'll help track down a runaway, kidnappings are a matter for the police. Those cases, they almost never end well, and I don't need that kind of nonsense. Abner's case sounded perfect. A new network to investigate? A mysterious company I didn't know well? He was a C-suite executive at one of the 50 largest companies in the country. The job would likely involve a lot of legwork, but it meant that I wasn't likely to get bored. Before driving over, I pulled up some information on Syncorp, just to get the lay of the land. 
Barely a decade ago, the company had been founded in a former tool and dye factory off Brook Park Road, the kind that auto manufacturers had left to rot when they moved their production overseas. Cleveland has plenty of those to pick from. But these days, now they rent out half of one of the tallest skyscrapers in the city. Word on the street is, they plan to build their own building in the next few years, one that'll be taller than anything else between New York and Chicago. It's been a while since anyone in Cleveland had that kind of ambition, let alone with the capital to back it up. The man behind it all was Iratu Shimiyuro, the only son of immigrant parents. He'd weathered the 2008 recession better than most, and he'd been smart enough to capitalize on industries full of potential for growth. Healthcare. See, Cleveland happens to have one of the best healthcare systems on the planet, and Shimiyuro leveraged his technological know-how to help that industry innovate. Then, once he had his hand in MRI imaging and AI-driven diagnostic software, he was able to pivot those same technologies into consumer electronics. Some of his software is probably built into your camera's smartphone. And with each passing year, Syncorp continues to grow. They're pushing into as many different technologies as they can, and their future looks very bright indeed. Which is why Abner's recent troubles couldn't have come at a worse time. More than just a typical executive, he was also an early investor. He joined Shimiyuro three years after the company started, investing tens of thousands of dollars of his own money. The 4% of Syncorp that he owned was already nothing to scoff at, but it was about to become a fortune. Meanwhile, his department is fundamental to the company's success. See, Abner is the vice president of product development. He's not personally the one writing software or building prototypes. Instead, he's the man guiding the teams of people who do. Abner has a hand in all of Syncorp's major developments. Of course, such a high profile has also made him the perfect person to try and blackmail. He was someone that people in the industry knew. Today, he could cash out his ownership stake and make a few million dollars. But a few months from now, once the company went public, it might be worth as much as half a billion. See, when a company plans to list itself on a major stock exchange, they have something called an IPO, an initial public offering. This is where large trading firms and banks get first bite at the apple, and it helps determine what the public value of the company is going to be. A successful IPO can make you the next Facebook, but if it flops, it can smother your company's stock in the crib. Already, people were expecting Syncorp to have the largest IPO in over a decade. Abner stood to see his wealth rise into the stratosphere, but only if he was still in a position to collect once the IPO was over. See, if Abner gets fired, the company would insist on buying him out. Yeah, he'd have a few million dollars to cushion the blow, but he'd be locked out on the hundreds of millions he'd have access to otherwise. For the past several weeks, someone's been sending Abner pictures in the mail. Pictures that have him spooked. So far, I hadn't been able to figure out exactly what the pictures revealed, but that's part of what I was hoping to learn by going into the Viper's Den. This is the kind of work I love. Different. Sexy and most importantly, highly billable. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I still needed to convince Abner to hire me. He's interested, but he was also being careful, and he said he still had half a mind to go to the police. Now, if all you want is your blackmailer to go to jail, that's fine. The problem is that risks them leaking whatever information they've got over you, especially if they're not working alone. When Abner contacted me asking for help, I told him all of this up front. 
Some of my competitors refused to say a word until they received a down payment. My grandfather used to call that pennywise and pound foolish. That's why I had a meeting, and they were still looking for other clients. The security guard scowled at me as I pulled up to the gate. I suppose there aren't that many Ford Focuses in the Syncourt parking lot. It's mostly Teslas and BMWs. After getting out of my car, I had to pass through three security checkpoints on my way to Abner's floor. Thankfully, I left my Walther in the glove box. I rode the elevator to the 27th floor. Stepping out, the offices were fashionably modern. Smooth lines, bold colors, conspicuously cold. There were no plants, no paintings on the wall. Now the building itself is a remnant of 70s-era construction, with fluorescent lighting and drop ceilings. The modern look was just a veneer. The architecture jarred with the design, a kind of unsettling schism that leaves you feeling uncomfortable, though it's hard to say just why. No wonder they were planning to move. It wasn't hard to find Abner's office. Like most executives, before you reach Abner, you have to pass through a medium-sized outer office, one that insulates his inner sanctum from the hallway. And waiting there, you'll typically find a highly aggressive assistant, one who's determined to control the flow of both people and information going in both directions. Abner's girl Friday had an unassuming look. Bangs, glasses, her hair tied in a tight little ponytail. However, her voice carried the firmness of someone used to being listened to. Her name was Riley Parker. I wasn't getting anywhere without getting through her. I flashed my investigator's license, but found Riley to be completely unimpressed. I'm here to see Abner, I told her. She frowned, her eyes probing for every visible flaw. What's this about? He wanted to meet me. It's a private matter. At that, she leaned forward, and a grin crept across her face. Are you... is this about the pictures? So, she knew about the blackmail. I made a mental note to interview her later. She might know something important. Hell, maybe she was the one sending them. Right now, there was no way to tell. But for the time being, I needed to play things coy. I had to prove that I could be trusted with anything that Abner told me. It's a private matter, I repeated. It is. Riley smiled knowingly. Will you let him know I'm here? He's on a conference call with a supplier. It's going to be a while until he's free. Her eyes darted to the right. A line of plastic chairs were pressed against the wall. They didn't look particularly comfy. I settled into one of them as Riley returned to work. However, I could feel her watching me out of the corner of her eye. It was several minutes before the door to Abner's office finally opened. Riley, I need you to get me a meeting with Roger for tomorrow. The gentleman you arranged for is waiting for you. The gentle... It took Abner a moment to understand. Then he pulled his lips back in a fake grin and turned to face me. Abner didn't look like the kind of person you imagine when you hear the title technology executive. First of all, he wasn't very young. His black hair was full of silver streaks. He had thick lips and a bushy mustache. His button-down shirt had vertical stripes. However, he was also wearing black jeans and a pair of tennis shoes. Truthfully, he just looked weird. Let's go inside. Together, we walked into his office. Abner immediately locked the door behind us. On the inside, it was the opposite of the hallways that I'd walked through to get here. He had a heavy wooden desk with soft, curved edges. Several large, expensive paintings dominated the walls, 
and marble statues stood guard at regular intervals. The back wall was a series of three large windows from which you could look out over public square. That's a hell of a view, I offered. I really love this city. I sat in front of his desk and shrugged. It has its charms. Everyone told me to move. Silicon Valley, New York, Tokyo. That's where the growth is. I must have heard that a million times. I guess you proved them wrong. So it would seem. What followed was an awkward moment, but it's one that I've become quite familiar with. If you're trying to hire me, then something's gone wrong somewhere in your life. Happy people don't hire private investigators. Even when I've already arrived, it takes some folks a minute or two to find their way to the point. Sometimes I offer them a shortcut. Listen, Mr. Forrest, you called me here for a reason. Abner nodded. Guys like this weren't used to being told to hurry up. Usually it was their time that was more valuable. Putting him on the spot like that made Abner feel a little bit off balance. Vulnerable. Is there some type of contract I have to sign? Not exactly. There's a retainer charge, of course. That's a flat rate of one fifty per hour. I keep track of my expenses, and once this is over, I'll send you the bill. My assistant will email you the agreement, which you'll need to sign before I start working on your case. But that only happens if I agree to take your case. So let's cut to it. What am I being hired to do, Mr. Forrest? I told you over the phone. I'm being blackmailed. And you said there were pictures but you never said what you were doing to be blackmailed for. I was hoping not to. I let out an exaggerated sigh. I'd never gone more than a month without having this conversation, but it never gets any less exhausting. In fact, it gets worse. Mr. Forrest, if you want me to do my job, I need to know what I'm looking for. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that he wasn't convinced. That was when I climbed to my feet. Look. If I don't know what I'm looking for, I won't be able to verify that I've gotten it. And besides, I'm going to figure out what's in it anyway, or I wouldn't be doing my job. Anyway, I won't waste my time with a client who refuses to trust me. I'm not comfortable with that. Sometimes, you have to play hard to get. Without a word, I turned back towards the door. I made it three steps before I heard Abner's voice. Where are you going? I already said, I'm not wasting my time. I want your help, Mr. Adams. No. You want a magic wand that'll make your problems disappear. Well, I'm not a wand, Abner. I'm like an attorney. The more you tell me, the more I can help. But if you hold back, if you lie to me, I refuse to put myself through that kind of stress. Not anymore. How do I know that you won't use this information to blackmail me yourself? Because if I was doing that, I'd have been arrested by now. There aren't a lot of serial blackmailers. Do you know why? Because sooner or later, you hit someone who decides they'd prefer to go public. What else is there to do? And when that happens, blackmailers always find their asses in jail. Abner eyed me warily as he weighed his options. This is the moment when you know how serious your client really is. The desperate and the truly spooked will accept the line without any hesitation. A more cool-headed client will keep asking questions. And then there's a certain type of hard-headed person, the person who digs in their heels and refuses to give in, it's never a good idea to work with them. They usually end up bungling everything anyway. All right. I nodded and sat back down in the chair. Okay, Mr. Forrest, let's get down to it. What do they have? It's nothing personal, I'm just... <laughs> he was trying to apologize. 
In the end, there wasn't the need. Like I said, I don't take these things personally. I'm already being blackmailed. You can see why I'm nervous to talk about it. He let out a heavy sigh when he realized he wasn't going to be able to keep this hidden. Not from everyone. But with my help, hopefully he could prevent it from being seen by the wrong people. He opened the drawer of his desk and frowned. I'm a fucking idiot. I very explicitly said nothing. It's just, a man like me, sometimes inspiration doesn't come without some help. Drugs. I had a hunch that they'd be involved. He wasn't married, so whoever was holding this over him wasn't counting on embarrassment alone. I've been... Sometimes I use substances that aren't strictly legal to help me along. Right. So what is it? Coke? Meth? Heroin? Abner flashed me the hairy eyeball. Cocaine. I buy it from a young man who doesn't cut it down. I pay a premium, but it's almost pure. Uncut shit. What a load of crap. You've got to be pretty gullible to take a drug dealer's word on anything. And the last thing they'll cop to is cutting their shit. Hell, it's probably been cut three or four times before he got it. If the pure shit ever made it into a street junkie's hands, the poor bastard would be dead of an overdose before he snorted a second line. At that moment, I almost felt sorry for Abner. Almost. Also, there's a girl that I see. I'm sure he does more than see her. Is it different girls or just the one? It's the same girl. What's her name? Abner hesitated a few seconds, but he was already in too deep. Chelsea. Chelsea Westmarch. Well, that was obviously fake, which was no surprise. Streetwalkers learn the value of a pseudonym pretty quick. Still, finding out her real name wouldn't be very hard. All right, tell me more about Chelsea. She's got an apartment downtown. I usually swing by after I've gotten some... stuff. And we share a bit of it, and, um... Do I really have to talk about this? I think I've got the idea. Thank God. His palpable relief tells me everything I need to know about what's going to be in those pictures. Sex and drugs. Probably freaky sex. The poor bastard is terrified of other people learning his kink. Is it bondage? Does he like dressing up like a giant teddy bear and getting spanked? Whatever it is, his fears are most likely overblown. People are terrified of their personal proclivities becoming public knowledge. But almost everyone I've ever investigated turned out to be interested in something that you might consider off-menu. Foot fetishes, dwarves, cute little Asian schoolgirls. When I first took the job, I started looking at people in a whole new way. But these days, it's not even interesting anymore. I turned back towards Abner. You're sure it's not the girl? She'd be in trouble, too. How so? She's got a boyfriend who doesn't know how she makes her money. He just thinks it's all student loans. I fought the urge to laugh out loud. A boyfriend? Being in college? These lies were so common I hardly even noticed them anymore. Poor Abner doesn't even realize how he's getting played. I decided not to say anything. Yet. He wouldn't want to hear it, and I probably wouldn't get paid. On the other hand, if I'm able to get some proof... And who knows, maybe it is someone else. Landing a John like Abner is hard work. Until I looked at her a little bit closer, Chelsea Westmarch was just as much of a question mark as everyone else. 
All right, let's see the pictures. What happened then was the first thing to really surprise me. Abner leaned over and pushed the intercom on his desk. Riley, would you bring in file 86, please? I couldn't believe it. This guy was letting his secretary hold on to his blackmail pictures? Was he nuts? I was still trying to process it all as she walked through the door. Out from behind her desk, Riley seemed a little less confident. Outside, she had power. She was the gatekeeper. But when he summoned her in here, she became just another lackey. Riley placed a pair of manila envelopes on Abner's desk. Is there anything else? Abner shook his head. Stay here. He nodded at the envelopes. I reached forward and pulled out the photos. Some showed Abner climbing into his car. I instantly recognized the parking garage. These had been taken downstairs. After that, there were pictures of his car beside an empty warehouse parked down by the river. Cleveland used to be an industrial giant, a leviathan thriving on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. But the latter half of the 20th century hadn't been kind. Even after a decade of urban renewal, there's still a lot of rust on this belt. The city is peppered with abandoned factories, rotting warehouses, buildings too run down to be reused, too expensive to demolish, a massive lead weight around the region's ankles. Abner's dealer took advantage of that. There were too many places for the cops to keep track of, so Abner could drive down there in his flashy little Tesla, buying his drugs out in the open. That same sloppiness allowed Abner's blackmailer to capture the perfect series of images, highlighting every moment of their deal. Several of the pictures had messages scrawled across them in bright yellow paint. You've got plenty of options, money to burn, but there's a lesson here that you need to learn. <laughs> cute. I glance at the next photo. Time to resign. Throw it all out the door. Do it soon, Abner, before I have to send more. The next message was less ambiguous. Give up your options, your health care, your severance. Starting from scratch is your form of penance. Admittedly, the pictures were good, clear, well shot. Whoever took them had the most incriminating moments and then some. I opened the second envelope. If you want to avoid being blackmailed, let me offer you some advice. Close the blinds before you fuck. I don't care what floor you're on. Drones, long lenses, there are plenty of ways to spy through an open window. Did all these come at once? Abner nodded towards Riley. She shivered as I turned my attention towards her. They came one at a time. There's a new one every morning. Every morning? There were more than 20 pictures here. I thought he said he'd been blackmailed for over a week. I can get the envelopes, but they're marked with labels and they don't have a return address. I frowned. This was sounding more and more like a professional. The photos had been printed on a home printer using common photo paper. And while printers can be matched, you have to know the printer you're trying to place. That wasn't going to help me make a list of suspects. Still, there were a few places I could start. The drug dealer, for one. Maybe he had enemies. Or maybe he thought Abner was so much of a rube that he could blackmail his own customer. I turned back towards Riley. You're the one who opens these? I open all of Mr. Forrest's mail. When I saw these... Riley's very discreet. I trust her with everything. Is that so? Riley nodded. I can keep a secret, but if these got out... I'd be ruined. I'd be fired. And right before my share of the company will be worth tens of millions of dollars. 
Maybe billions. The IPO's looking that good? Abner smiled. I can't talk about that. Fair enough. So the real question is, who hates you and doesn't care about money? When I said that, Abner frowned. It was clear that he didn't quite follow. Why blackmail you now, Abner? In a few months, you'll be able to pay out a hundred times as much. I already knew the answer, but I needed Abner to put that together himself. Thankfully, he got there eventually. Because who's ever behind this doesn't expect me to be here that long. Well, at least he could figure out that much. I don't suppose you've got any rivals who'd like to get you out of the way. Abner glanced towards Riley, and she gave him a slight nod. You might want to get out a piece of paper. Ambitious men usually have a lot of enemies. Someone was doing their best to destroy him. Now it was my job to figure out who. Leaving the Synthetic Corporation, I grabbed a bite to eat and made my way back to the agency. <laughs> the agency. It sounds more impressive than it really is, and that's by design. The truth is, I rent a small office on the near west side. Downstairs, I've got a large mail slot with my name on it. Once you walk up a narrow flight of stairs, you'll find a frosted glass door with Adam's Investigation stenciled in large black letters. The mail slot does what its name implies, but I also tell clients that they can use it as a dead drop. Today, the drop was empty, so I bounded up the steps and walked in through the frosted glass door. The moment I stepped inside, Linda turned to face me. Linda's been my assistant and office manager for a year and a half. She's good, but irritable. But you need a little bit of grit to survive in this business. Of course, that also means that I've got to put up with her, too. I, uh, I don't really spend that much time around the office. Hey. Abner pulled the trigger. Good. We need the money coming in. You did deposit the checks I gave you this morning, right? Of course, I nodded. Or at least I was going to deposit them. Technically, the envelope was still in the back seat of my car. I'd had a busy morning, and the bank didn't close until four anyway, so... Because if they're not in before the end of the business today, we can't make payroll. I told you it's done. It wasn't worth another conversation. One of her paychecks was late once, and Linda blew her top. Now she acts like I can't balance a checkbook. I walked by and into my office. Closing the door, I slid into a padded chair behind my desk. For a few moments, I could just be myself. So much of my work involves blending into a crowd that I seldom get time to be myself. That's why I treasure little moments like that. But it's funny. If I'd just grabbed my laptop and gone home, I might have avoided all of this nonsense. Of course, you can drive yourself mad thinking thoughts like that. After 20 minutes, I packed up my computer and a few personal files. I walked briskly back out the door, not giving Linda a chance to deliver any messages. Whatever they were, they could wait. Tonight, I had research to do on Abner Forrest. Whoever was blackmailing him, they seemed to know what they were doing. They might be getting help from another private investigator, which would actually be a lucky break. A lot of those guys owe me favors, and I'm not exactly opposed to twisting an arm or two if it gets me what I want. Now, I know what you're thinking. But trust me, I'd never sell out my own client like I hoped that they were going to. Of course, I'm also not in the business of facilitating blackmail. This job attracts all sorts, and most of them aren't as scrupulous as I am. 
That was all I could think about as I walked outside, but the moment my foot touched the sidewalk, an unmarked black and white pulled up beside me. They flashed their lights and screeched to a stop. Damn it. What did I do this time? Working independently, there's plenty of times where I might... Well, let's just say that some laws are less important than others. Knowing which rules you can bend is one of the most valuable things a PI needs to know. Personally, I've never been caught doing anything worth prosecuting. At least, not anything that would stick. But I've been arrested more than my fair share, and as a former cop who left under less-than-ideal circumstances, I don't exactly get treated with kid gloves. Quite the opposite, actually. As they flashed their lights, I opened the back door of my car. I slid my laptop onto the back seat, then I closed and locked the door as quickly as I could. Now they'd need a warrant to get at it. I leaned against the trunk and looked back at the other car. I can't say I was exactly surprised by who stepped out, but I wasn't happy to see him. When we first met, Blake West had been a lowly beat cop just like me. We were young, naive, notably smarter than most of our colleagues. And I don't say that to sound arrogant, I'm hardly a genius. Hell, I know that Blake is smarter than I am. But I have a knack for getting into other people's heads, and that's helped me solve plenty of cases over the years. Of course, it was also instrumental in my swift and sudden downfall. That, along with Blake West's willingness to play ball, and my own refusal to keep my mouth shut. There's a limit for how far the truth will carry you when you work for the police. Blake and I see each other from time to time, and each meeting feels more unpleasant than the one that came before. So if there was trouble, it wasn't surprising that someone in the department had sent Blake to fetch me. Cops can be real vindictive pricks. You have a minute, Zeke? Do I have a choice? He smirked. Blake was short, and his hair was slicked back with thick, shiny grease. It made him look like the villain in an 80s movie about Wall Street. He nodded towards the passenger seat of his car, and with a heavy sigh, I climbed inside. The moment that the door was closed, Blake slammed his foot on the accelerator. As we rocketed forward, Blake began the worst sales pitch in history. There's a case. I almost couldn't believe my ears. You've got to be kidding. Just shut up and listen. This is serious. I shook my head, unable to believe what was happening. I'd have preferred to be arrested, and considering how it's all played out, that would have been better for everyone. But Blake wasn't arresting me. He wanted my help with a case. I know you don't like missing persons, but this is important. My blood ran cold. What's this about, Blake? Can you keep this a secret? I'm serious. I know our history, but someone's life's on the line. Our history refers to the case that got me removed from the force. Yeah, I can keep a secret. But if you're expecting me to hold water for- It's water under the bridge, Zeke. Not for me, it's not. Just listen, okay? I nodded and Blake cleared his throat. You know Killian O'Malley, right? Now that was a stupid question. Anyone in my line of work knew who Killian O'Malley was. You probably do, too. But just in case, Killian is the county's top prosecutor. Right now, he's in charge of a particularly high-profile case. A pair of cops who shot a teenager with a wooden toy playing behind a school. They said it was a misunderstanding. It was dark, they said. They thought he had a real gun. But we live in a post-George Floyd world, and this is the same department that gunned down Tamir Rice less than a decade ago. So this time, the case is going to trial. Hell, I don't need to give you the details. You've probably seen this all over the news. 
The whole city is debating the case in the court of public opinion, and Killian's trapped in the middle. It's at times like this that I'm glad not to carry a badge anymore. So, why was Blake West talking to me about Killian O'Malley? His kid went missing six days ago. Son of a bitch. Only a few people know. We're keeping it off the books. I couldn't believe my ears. Well, why the fuck haven't you called the FBI? By law, any kidnapping is a federal crime. As long as there's reason to believe that the missing person is still alive, the feds are in charge of running the case. We've been trying to find them, but we're trying to keep it quiet. If this comes out, there's going to be pressure to put the trial on hold. You're putting a kid's life in jeopardy because you're worried about the press? What the fuck is the matter with you? His dad did that. He didn't report it for two days. By the time we were called, the trail was already cold. Now the higher-ups don't want to make him look bad. If they have to delay the case, the pressure for a change of venue will be too much to ignore. And if that happens... Blake didn't have to say anything else. As far as the trial was concerned, everyone with eyeballs could see that the cops had fucked up. There was security footage and everything. The police were hoping that O'Malley wouldn't push as hard as a truly independent prosecutor because he had to deal with the local PD every day. Both sides knew that if a rift formed between the cops and the prosecutor's office, that would spell trouble for everyone. So even if O'Malley convicted them, he'd push for a lighter sentence than just about anyone else. At least, that's what the cops wanted. But there's a significant portion of the city that wants those guys' heads on a platter, and they're agitating for justice. O'Malley's feeling heat from both sides, and if it looks like he was compelled to throw the whole trial one way or the other, that would be enough to get the whole mess retried. Then, this whole damn affair would drag on for longer, at least another year. No one wants that. And now, O'Malley's kid turns up missing? Was someone trying to leverage him one way or the other? Of course, since he'd been trying to keep this quiet, his whole career might be in jeopardy if the truth leaked out. It was like someone decided to pour a can of lighter fluid on a hot stove. Our best chance of getting this kid back alive is to do it fast and do it now. Quietly. As much as I hated to admit it, he was probably right. If this exploded in the news, whoever took the kid would lose all their leverage. Now that might lead them to letting him go, but it wasn't the most likely scenario. Why me? Because you're outside the system, and as much as I hate to say it, you're still better than anyone else I could bring in on this case, in the force or not. You've got a lot of fucking nerve. Yeah, and you're weighed down by your conscience. That's what got you kicked off the force. Now I'm counting on that to save this kid's life. Fuck you, Blake. If you're willing to help, they're expecting you. Who? O'Malley and his wife. Now? Like I said, this has to go fast. Oh, shit. If I hadn't been at the office, Blake wouldn't have known where to find me. Time was of the essence here, and maybe he would have turned to somebody else. Then I'd still be at home, instead of in a warehouse with a bullet in my gut. No good deed goes unpunished, am I right? In hindsight, I should have turned it down. I knew it was dirty. And besides, there's a reason I don't take on cases like this. But I've always been a sucker for the desperate. I hate to admit it, but Blake was right about my conscience. Regardless of how big an asshole O'Malley might be, that wasn't his kid's fault. Little did I know just how far south this whole thing was going to go. Bullets and Rust is written, recorded, and edited by Abraham Dunn. The theme music is written and performed by Avril McAnally. 
the cast for this episode was Mary Joyce, Bernadette, Martello, Deegan as Linda, Alexandria Marshall as Riley Parker, Colin McCormick as Abner Forrest, David Payne as Detective Blake West. It should go without saying, but this series is entirely fictional, as are its characters. Any claims of resemblance to actual people says more about the person making them than it does about this show. This has been a Needle Drop production. On the next episode of Bullets and Rust, Blake West wants my help with a case. The son of the local district attorney has gone missing, and the police are stumped. My first suspects in a case like this would usually be the parents, but Blake says no dice. Ten minutes with them will tell you they couldn't have done it. The kid's missing, and the evidence is murky. Except for one thing. When I meet the O'Malley's, they're anything but what I expect. By Sunday night, I couldn't take it anymore. I told Lynn that we had to call the police. I know I don't come off as a family man, but I love my wife and I love my son. Then there was the other member of the family. I hope so, Mr. Adams. You've got a title to live up to. That and more on the next episode of Bullets and Rust.